0: We are finishing up our sermon series looking at the Gospel according to John. Uh, and in fact, last week, uh, the end of chapter 20, uh, the Apostle John writes, there are so many things that Jesus did and said. We couldn't record them all. But these things we have written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing in Him, you would have new life in His name. That's an ending why did he write more? What's the purpose of John's epilogue? Let's find out. We're going to be looking at John chapter 21. I'm going to start just by reading verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. Oh God, as we come to your word this morning, we hear this story about Jesus and his disciples and it seems so simple and that means it's easy for us to tune out, to dismiss this passage and so that I I ask that you would send your spirit to us, help us to sense you speaking to us through these words. I pray that my words fall to the floor and only your words remain, and I pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. The muskie is, according to sport fishermen, one of the hardest fish to catch. In fact, its nickname is the fish of 10,000 casts, meaning you can cast 10,000 times, you're still not going to catch one. It is a strong fish. It's speedy. It is silvery black, has tons of teeth. It kind of looks like a pike, if you know fish. Uh, If you don't, just imagine a torpedo with a smile. (laughs) They are the prize fish in Canada where Nicole's dad and I used to go fishing every summer. And for the first three or four years that we went, no bites. Three or four thousand casts, at least, until one day uh, I cast out about 200 feet from the boat. And as I was reeling in, I thought I hooked a log couldn't move anything, and so we began to move the boat towards where my lure was buried underwater when all of a sudden that log started to move, and it started to swim right at the boat, and so I was reeling as fast as I could to make sure that the, the line didn't break, and about a hundred feet from the boat, Nicole's dad goes, it's a muskie, and I panicked, and right on cue, that monster jumped out of the water, shook his head as hard as it could, ripped the lure out of its lip, and hit the side of the boat with the lure. I mean, I have an adrenaline rush just telling you this story. Uh, And then it disappeared. It was amazing. And for the rest of that trip, and for the next two trips, I tried to recreate that exact experience. We went to that same little cove. I made sure I had the exact same color of lure, the same pattern. I was casting in the same direction. I was trying to reel quickly and then slowly, trying to lure this fish back out. Then we'd change directions and go from the other side and try to get the exact same thing to happen. But fishing is like almost everything else in life, and that is, it is hard, if not impossible, to recreate an amazing experience. And that's exactly what John wants to address in his epilogue. He has just written about how God revealed Himself to humanity through Jesus. About how the kingdom of God was revealed through Jesus' words and His actions. And after His death and resurrection, Jesus revealed Himself to His disciples and His followers powerfully. And if we're reading those 20 chapters correctly we should be saying, what about me? How do I get to experience Jesus now? How does Jesus continue to reveal Himself to His people? That's the question John answers in this epilogue. How does the resurrected Jesus continue to reveal Himself to His people? And the first part of his answer, John uses two analogies two stories that John records in which Jesus explains a little bit about his process of revelation, right? And these two illustrations are fishing, conveniently for the first illustration, right? And the second is shepherding, or as I've called it throughout our sermon series, sheeping. Fishing and sheeping. We're going to look at both of those illustrations and see what Jesus has to say about how he reveals himself to his people throughout history. So the first one is fishing, and what we see is that Jesus draws his people to himself. Jesus draws his people to himself. In helping the disciples figure out how to catch fish, right? This is embarrassing. This is their job, and Jesus has to show them how to do it. He is actually drawing the disciples to himself. He is catching them, if you will, In this miraculous and merciful reversal of fortune, the Apostle John realizes it is the Lord, he proclaims. And it's that same experience that leads Peter to jump out of the boat. Jesus engages with the disciples out on the sea by asking a question. Children, do you have any fish? Now, that might seem like maybe Jesus is being a little bit egotistical, right? This question comes with a little bit of bravado. Fishing? Got anything in the boat? Didn't think so. Things aren't going so well without me, are they? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's asking a question of genuine interest, of concern. Have you guys caught anything? How is it going with you? He is really asking them. And then, he engages with their need. He draws them to himself, right? He's not coming down on them hard. Guys, why are you fishing? Come back to me, you idiots. He is simply lovingly meeting them where they're at. Experiencing their need and engaging with it. He's speaking to their hearts. This is how Jesus reveals Himself now. Personally engaging through His Word. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing soul from spirit, joint from marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God does all of that. So when you read your Bible prayerfully, when you engage and discuss the Word with other believers faithfully, when you sit and hear the Word of God preached, the Spirit of God makes His words, especially the words and work of Jesus, powerful and personal drawing you to Jesus but in this story the fish themselves are actually the lesson right so many fish are gathered into the nets they remember the exact number 153 a little bit of a brag by the apostle John there but the net doesn't break Jesus and then invites the disciples to bring some of the fish they've caught to breakfast but there's already fish on the fire for breakfast what is Jesus doing here Most scholars believe that John uses this story, this situation, as an allegory, meaning the things in the story represent something else. And so what we see here is that Jesus is inviting those that he's already caught to catch others and bring them into an encounter to a meal with him. Jesus catches the disciples, and then as he promised for the beginning of the gospel, he makes them fishers Of men. All who follow Jesus, who have been caught by Jesus, are invited to catch others, to bring others to Jesus. So let me ask you this question Who are you drawing to Jesus? How are you drawing others to Jesus? Now, before you get uh, dismissive or uncomfortable or defensive, Notice that the method of catching in this passage isn't an argument. There is no anger involved. It's not a soundly constructed theological discussion with well-reasoned points. It's genuine curiosity. It's meeting fishermen in the middle of their work. It's care and concern. It's meeting the needs of others. That's how Jesus catches us right where we're at. Incarnationally, right? Not just an engagement with the mind or the heart. Jesus wants the whole fish. You and I are the whole, we're the whole fish. He wants all of us. Which means that's probably a great place for us to start when we try to follow his call to catch others, to bring others. Care, concern, incarnationally, meeting others where they're at and addressing needs. I actually heard this explained perfectly yesterday. I stopped by the Rebuilding Together project that we had going on the east side of town. We had 20 folks from the church helping to scrape and sand and prime and paint the home uh, of a woman who had lived there for 37 years. And uh, she wanted to talk to a pastor. So when I arrived, Javier was like, come, she wants to talk to the pastor. And she said, all of these people go to your church? And I said, yes, man. We Grace South Bay with 250 people-ish. These, all these folks go to our church. And most of them helped serve at our last Rebuilding Together event, which we did in October at a different house. And she said, oh, so you've done this before. And Justin Lee, one of our ruling elders, who happened to be working right where our conversation was taking place, said, yes, we do this often. He said, we know that Jesus loves us so much and how he has served us. And so we go and tell others and we love, show others that same love. Sometimes it's with our words and sometimes it's with our paint. Boom. Justin not only explained it perfectly, but he was doing it while explaining it. Sorry, Justin, I didn't tell you I was going to use this as an illustration. Uh, Like my kids, I owe you a dollar for not asking your permission. Um, Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, but that's Justin. I mean, have you met Justin? I am no Justin. I wouldn't know what to say in a situation like that, I feel so uncomfortable. I would rather just do the sanding or the painting. I don't want to talk or do anything like that. I'm not like him. You can't imagine what's happened in my life. You can't imagine how much I've sinned. There's no way Jesus would want me to speak for him. Which is why we have a second story. A second analogy. Fishing and sheeping. Sheeping, shepherding, all that second second story. So follow along as I read for us starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He then said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus switches from fish to sheep, and what He shows us here is that Jesus renews through repentance and forgiveness. He renews through repentance and forgiveness. Jesus here is feeding and tending to one of His sheep while showing that sheep how to feed and tend to other sheep. Jesus walks Peter to the point of repentance. You might remember that on the night of Jesus's uh, trial, it was Peter who denied Jesus three times, just as Jesus had predicted. And after the third time, when the rooster crowed, Jesus turns and he looks through the courtyard of the high priest and locks eyes with Peter. And so in bringing up this threefold denial, Jesus walks Peter through his sin to the point of Repentance. When, G, when Peter insists that Jesus knows everything, it's not an, a, a, a response of exasperation. Jesus, Peter's not like, "Come on Jesus, let's get I get it. I understand." It's an expression of submission, of humility. Peter acknowledges that his own heart is broken because of his threefold denial. And Jesus does this for a purpose. He does this not only to forgive Peter thoroughly but after each question after each affirmation jesus then extends the charge to care for the flock again right he invites peter to continue to serve to continue to lead it's a renewal of commitment from peter to jesus but also from jesus to peter it's renewal it's new life Jesus brings Peter back. See, Peter Peter didn't know what to do after Jesus had risen from the dead, after they had left Jerusalem and gone back to Galilee, which is where the Sea of Tiberias is. He just went back to fishing because that's what he knew how to do. That was his old life. But Jesus says, no. We're not going to sweep this under the rug. We're not going to forget this ever happened. We're going to take the issue head on. Peter, experience my forgiveness. Let me renew you. But it comes through repentance. It comes through confession. An acknowledgement of our own sin. And very, very few of us, myself included, like being confronted by our own sin, especially by the person whom we sinned against. Facing sin is intimidating. It's embarrassing. It can be shameful. It can be scary. But this is situation reminds me of the words from the uh, Switchfoot song from the early 2000s. You might remember it. I don't know if you do, but I did. The bridge goes, maybe redemption has stories to tell. Maybe forgiveness is right where you fell. Where are you going to go? Salvation is here. Jesus reveals himself to his people through mercy through confession, through forgiveness. That's why repentance is so important. That's why we do it every week in the service. Not so that we can all check it off the list and say, great, now we don't have to think about our sin until 9.20 next Sunday. It's so that we build a rhythm of repentance and forgiveness into our life. So that we see that repentance and forgiveness go together hand in hand. Like John writes in his first letter, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those two things happen together. So repent, confess. Jesus feeds and tends his sheep through repentance, forgiveness, and renewal. And that is also the way that we are called to tend and to feed others in humility, in weakness, inviting them into an encounter with Jesus where they have the opportunity to repent, where they can experience forgiveness and renewal. Now that that seems really counterintuitive. It seems absolutely ridiculous. Why would any of my friends, any of my family, any of my coworkers want to come and experience this person, to come see what I'm doing if it turns you into a weak, humble person who's only focused on her sin? FBI negotiators call this the paradox of power, right? The harder that you push someone to believe something, to agree with you, to convince them that what you believe is right and what they believe is not working, the more likely you are to get resistance. And the harder you push, the harder the push back. But if you humble yourself, if you expose yourself, if you come in weakness... People are more likely to be interested and intrigued by what you have to say and more inclined to agree with what you present to them. The community of God's people, all the fish and all the sheep gathered together, the church, this place is perhaps the only place in all of Silicon Valley where the person in charge is truly concerned with the people more than the output where truly admitting your failure actually wins people over. This place, the church. And it all starts with you. It starts with you experiencing Jesus and the new life that He brings through confession and repentance, through forgiveness and renewal. That's the way that Jesus catches us and renews us through His Word, through repentance and forgiveness. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's not like, I did that last week, I'm good to go for a long time. Or, you know what, I I became a Christian when I was a kid, now I can do whatever I want. It's an everyday, all the time, experience and renewal, right? And the more it becomes part of the rhythm of your life, the more Jesus becomes part of you. And the more that He becomes part of you, the more He comes out of you and the people around you, the other fish, the other sheep, get to see and experience Him. And through you, he catches them and draws them into an encounter with himself. When I was in seminary, I was an intern at a church, and I had to plan an event. And I worked hard, and I got the sign-ups out there, and we announced it in the bulletin, on the website, sent the emails out. People were really excited about it. And then the week of, everything fell apart. I hadn't double checked on certain people who had volunteered. I hadn't organized the food the right way. And so the week before this big event, we had to cancel it. And I was so embarrassed. And I couldn't believe it. I I had to announce it up front that we were canceling it, that I was canceling it. And I remember being called into a meeting with the pastors on Monday. And I was sure that I was just going to get roasted. This looked bad from my perspective, it looked bad for the church, it looked bad for the leadership. And I sat down and Mark, the head pastor, just started telling a story. He said, when I was an intern, this was like 10 years before I was an intern with him, I was asked to plan a men's retreat. And I organized the speaker and I organized the venue. We took the sign-ups. And we were about to start collecting the money when everything fell through. And I cost the church $10,000. That's it. That's what he said. And I was like, Mark, why, why are you telling me this? And he said, you need to know that Jesus works in weakness, in failure. You need to know, and all people need to know, that the church isn't run by the victorious who have figured it all out and gotten it together. But everybody needs to see that it is a collection of sinners who are all led by the only victorious one. He was explaining to me how to lead people while simultaneously leading me through His confession, through His weakness. It made such an impact on me and it has changed the way that I have chosen to do ministry throughout my life. As Jesus draws us to Himself, He tends to us through weakness, through confession, through repentance, and He calls us to go out and use that weakness that new life that He gives us to catch others and draw them to the place where they encounter Him and have a meal with Him. Let's pray. Oh God, we're so thankful for Your Son. We're thankful for the ways that You relentlessly pursue us even when we turn our back, even when we choose to look to the things of this world. You gather us into Yourself. We pray that we would not run away from our sin, but that we would bring it into the light, that we would confess it to others and to You so that in that confession, we might be, repen- we might be met by forgiveness and renewal so that as we encounter others, they might experience You, not our own abilities, not our own strengths, but through our weakness, Your victory, Your Son, who lived, died, and rose again for us. We pray in His name. Amen.